Greetings, rabble rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. This podcast is a proud part of New Left Media. So we've got another special edition of Blueprints up, one where we are going to break down and reveal just how Canada's leftist party, the NDP, operate. We're going to examine its power structure and its internal democracy, if we can call it that. (laughs) Now, I don't want you to always have to just take my word for what goes on in the NDP. Uh, The last episode, Candidate Crisis, we took many stories that were public knowledge and compiled them to explain that part of the process and and why that is such a detriment uh, to democracy and to the left. And this time, we've got three great guests on, and they're going to share firsthand experience from inside the party. All of our guests today were elected by the membership, by NDP membership, to be a part of the party executive. We'll have two members on from the Ontario NDP, and we'll have a member of the federal executive join us as well. Jay, we've heard from him before. Now, the executive is supposed to play a key role in the new Democratic Party. But what we find out, though, is that it is largely inaccessible, it lacks transparency, and seems to serve essentially as a rubber stamp for the choices that have already been made by senior staff. This, again, what we're trying to point out is just how small a group actually control the only leftist party within Canada and what that is doing to the people that join the party and what that translates into policy. And it's not pretty. It wasn't easy finding people to come forward either. Uh, The folks that have are incredibly brave because as we've demonstrated, the party is very vindictive to those who condemn it publicly. And when you couple that with the historic fact that so few who get onto the party executive seem to do so with any intention of instituting any kind of reforms, many like Akua explains, seem to be apathetic and resigned to the fact it is the way it is. Uh, We'll get into internal elections and why that is in another episode entirely, but it does play into this, certainly. So let's first hear from Akua Frimpong. (laughs) This is one amazing human being that I have been lucky to be put in contact with with my work in New Demichat. Her perspective is one of someone who has just joined the Ontario NDP executive and what it's been like navigating that space. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Akua. Can you introduce yourself to listeners before we start? Yes, absolutely. Um, My name is Akua Frempong, pronoun she, her, and I'm one of the Central East co-chairs on the Ontario NDP executive. Um, I reside in Whitby, where I am the communications director for my local EDA. 
Um, and I'm currently running for school board trustee in my area on top of all that. So a lot of organizing um, that I've grown to love and really appreciate in terms of getting out there and, and meeting community members. And through the NDP, I've had the amazing opportunity to meet wonderful um, <clears throat> organizers and activists such as yourself. And um, thank you again for the opportunity to speak to you today. Oh, the, the pleasure is all mine, Akua. I learn something every time I talk to you and uh, I I do I'm interested to get the inside scoop from the Ontario NDP executive. But first, I'd like to, a lot of folks don't plug in this deep into electoral politics. They may join a campaign around election time. They may even sit on their writing association, uh, Akua referred to it as an EDA. Um, what made you go that much further to, because that is an elected position that you hold within the Ontario NDP, what what made you run for that position? So it was, I'll be very honest, it wasn't very planned. Um, I didn't really know much about the structure of what was going to happen at convention that took place in February. It was my first time attending um, a, a convention, whether provincially or federally. And I only started organizing with the party formally by joining my EDA just last summer. Um, so it's all fairly, my involvement, I would say, is fairly recent. Um, so I think just through my EDA and, and some um, the two last federal elections that I, I volunteered for, um, I guess I started to get the ear of my organizer. So the day that we were scheduled to have those elections, um, like randomly in the afternoon, I was like at work and I got a call from my organizer saying, hey, um, would you consider like running for central east culture and i was like oh that's interesting I, to be honest i wasn't planning on it like i was just gonna pay my fee sit on zoom for the three days and kind of just learn about the um inner workings of the party because i wasn't i haven't really been previewed to it i don't really know the internal structure of what goes on but through um helen who's one of the um, persons living with disabilities co-chairs absolutely phenomenal 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 they do such incredible work they're actually we actually sit on our local EDA together. So they had been, um, they announced that they were going to be running formally. And I was like, you know, we absolutely support you. They had a whole bunch of resolutions that they put forward that our local EDA sponsored. And it was really nice to hear. And it's also disheartening, which we'll get to in a bit in terms of their experience and how they wanted to be more involved in shape policy, just in terms of combating a lot of the ableism that's taken place um, in our party. And I was like, I'd absolutely want to help and support you in that. And this gave me an opportunity to do that further and kind of find out what was happening in, in the party and why um, there were so many issues that I felt like people weren't really getting answers to. Um, and then through that, I was able to build community through new demo chat. Um, and then everything kind of just kind of just came together. So literally in the afternoon, I was like, yeah, I guess I'll think about it. And then um, I did a nomination through the floor, um, had a speech prepared and um, yeah, it, it was, it was, everything, everything came, came forward from there. It was actually kind of awkward because during that break, I think it was on the Saturday when they announced it, I literally like rushed out to get groceries with my mom. And then I came back and they're like, Hey, cool, you won. And I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. Um, so that was kind of funny, but yeah, it was an interesting three days and, uh, wanting to honestly might sound cliche, but wanting to support, the disability committee more, I think, was a lot of my my driving force and really find out about the inner workings of the, 
the party because just everything that Helen was going through in those meetings just didn't make any sense to me. And it didn't seem like anyone was doing anything about it. And then I remember you also sat in on that, that committee on the fry on the Friday. And it was just an absolute, it was just terrible. Like I've never sat through a committee meeting like that for that hour. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we, uh, there's work to do. So clearly yeah and I hear you say like you know I didn't know how the processes work and I don't think a good that's because you're new you you pick up things quite quickly um it's not communicated well I think most people went into that convention not really understanding how it works so it's quite brave to step forward I think you know especially being so new and sensing that there was a little bit of a lot of work to do um so kudos to you for kind of stepping up to do that and I know my face lit up when you nominated yourself or when you were nominated from the floor, um, that was a relief um, that, you know, there would be a, a friendly face because I, I, too, am part of Central East. So I'm thankful for you to be uh, one of our representatives. Now, you knew there were issues that needed fixing and uh, you mentioned wanting to help out the um, disability committee. How else did you envision your participation were you confident that you could make a difference? Honestly, I was. And I think that's just from like, I mean, this may, I mean, this might be self-absorbed, but I think just from like my, my um, like personality and how I organize and, and how I connect with people. Like I thought that that would be something good to bring to the table in terms of a different, bringing forth a different perspective of how I felt that um, policies and procedures should be, how we should be connecting with um, our membership. I know in Whitby, or I guess in, I would say Durham, we're a little bit more isolated because we're technically considered the 905, but like, I mean, nobody really knows or, or, or like the NDP isn't, isn't strong here like of our five writings we have one elected representative in oshawa jennifer french who just recently thank goodness um was re-elected so we're essentially back to where we started so there isn't really a lot of like love for durham as opposed to our toronto central writings that like very much seem to be the center point and focus for the entire party which doesn't really make sense to me given how many writings are outside of that demographic um, so I thought it would be a really good way to kind of connect as well within our, um, like within our, our region. Like I'm very, I'm, I'm very strong. I, like I really, really believe in the Durham region riding and we have a lot of population growth. The, the tides are turning, so to speak. I think we're going to see that with our upcoming municipal election. And there's, there's, there's an itch for organizing here, but again, it's it's a lot of a conservative and um, liberal stronghold. And I feel like we really haven't had an opportunity to kind of like break wind a bit, but it's just like we're not getting the organizing here that I would like. And I thought that perhaps having someone like myself come forward could maybe help bridge that gap a bit. Um but it's been interesting to say the least. Sorry if my voice sounds a little bit weird. My best friend got married over the weekend and I sang every single song under the sun until 1 a.m. So this is what I sound and so like. You should, but. <laughs> and so you should have. So then how's it going? I mean, I've seen I've seen some of the work that you've been doing and some of the advocating that you have been doing. And I do think that you have made impact. 
are you satisfied with the impact or tell us a little bit of what your experience has been like in the, the months that you have sat on the executive for the Ontario NDP? So I'll be very honest. And I think I've expressed this um, to you both publicly and privately that I very much seem like I am like talking at people in those meetings and I don't really feel like how I'm coming across seems to others as being collaborative versus like argumentative. And um, up until recently, like I had a, I had a moment, like I had an emotional moment where I was like, this is not like, this is not how that should be. Like, feeling like I'm carrying that angry black woman trope is like very, it's a lot, like it's a lot to deal with. Like I've already had to deal with it in my personal life just because of how I present. Like I consider myself to be very strong-willed and outspoken. And I don't know if it's the tone of my voice. I don't know if it's how I'm saying things. I don't know if it's because I'm frustrated because I feel like not it, nobody else is really speaking about those things, but I just feel like how I'm coming across is very combative and therefore like I'm not able to really be as effective and like get things done or frankly get clarification on the things that I'm asking about, which is quite frustrating um, because I know what I'm saying makes sense. And even if it's not coming out that way, like there's ways that um, other exec members perhaps can explain it in a way that um, I'm not. Um, we had a meeting over the weekend and one of the exec members was like, hey, um, I've been here for some time. If you want to reach out and I can, I'd be happy to explain processes to you. And I'm like, that's great. And it's it's great that they did that. But my issue is, is not necessarily with the processes. While they absolutely are an issue, and I think um, the disabled committee has very much like brought that to the forefront recently. Um, with some some emails and some correspondence and and things that have been going and petitions that have been going around, but my thing my big thing is which I don't feel like I have as much clarification on is also who is involved in these processes and how did these individuals get involved in these processes and how do we get more um, provincial council delegates involved in these processes and that's kind of what my my big thing is, and I just, I don't know if it's, if the party is technically an organization and relatively runs as a business again, I don't know. I'm just thinking about it in like the organization that I work for in healthcare where, you know, I, I, I go to the website and I can see who our team is and, and how to contact them. Um, remind you, I understand if there's like internal committees, you maybe not, you maybe don't want that information, um, put on the website or, um, things like that. But I know that the communication piece in terms of how people contact executive members has been an issue. Um, so actually, fun fact, if you do want to contact the executive, it's through executive at Ontario NDP.ca. And then if you're who asking answers to speak, that email, pardon, who answers, who receives that email? Um, so from my understanding, it's, a, it's, I, I'm just going to say, I'm under the impression it's someone in internal staff. And then let's say if I, if I like, if you wanted to, if you wanted to get in contact with me and didn't know how to, and you wrote to that executive email and was like, I want to speak to Akua specifically, then the staff member who's answering that email would then contact me internally and say, Hey, do you want to get, like, do you want to speak further to this? Or do you consent to having your 
your like personal email shared with this individual, and then that's how we would connect. Um, I that's guess the main thing that gatekeeping. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Akua. I just like I, it was a comment that like it's pretty selective gatekeeping then. Right. Like that's what it seemed like to me. The when I asked initially at our first executive meeting if we could just have the list made public, there was um from my understanding it was an issue with potential spam that could be overloaded, which I mean I I understand that and the fact that not all of us have consented to having our email shared publicly. So I was told that for instance, because I'm a like a regional chair, if you're in or if you're an equity group seeking chair, you would share your emails during like those meetings. Um, and then I guess if people outside of that wanted to contact you further, they could go through the executive email. Um, so that from when I asked the question just this past weekend, that seems to be the process to go forward. Um, I don't think that that's going to change. If people want to just have their email, um, readily available, that's fine. What I, what I think would even be better is if we just had like, for instance, like, um, like the Persons Living with Disabilities Committee, like if you're an equity um, seeking group, you would have like that particular email function. So like, I think it's like women's committee at ontarioNDP.ca or like those ones. So then if we already have those for the equity seeking groups, and I'm of the assumption that only the chairs of those committees have access to those particular email handles, then why don't we just do the same for all the other positions? So Either you create an at ontarioNDP.ca email for every executive member that is public, or you have it a little bit more, um, maybe not um, name specific, and then you just have like Central East co-chair or whatever at ontarioNDP.ca, and then therefore myself and Dave, my counterpart, would then be the only people answering that email if they had specific questions for us. Like I don't, if we're... If the issue is we don't want to receive spam, then instead of us receiving that spam through our personal emails, like why can't it just be an Ontario NDP.ca email address that's like relatively like central party regulated with all of their, you know, I guess IT and and um antivirus or whatever, and then just have the people who are elected to those positions take hold of those email addresses throughout their term. Like I don't think that there's an issue with that. And then if anything, if you want to archive emails or delete emails or whatever, and just have a clean slate for the next people who come into that position, then they just take on that email address. Yeah, I think like if it had been a one off or, you know, we weren't this far into the technology game where creating emails for people to access um, wasn't just so commonplace, we could think that it was a mistake. But I think like you can see and um other people have testified and we'll hear uh, throughout this episode is there's always kind of this focus on control versus access and we're the NDP right we have democratic in our name and we may be structured like a company which you know we're we're talking about here and I think is part of the problem but as an elected representative I should be able to get in touch with you not through a you shouldn't be able to decide whether or not you you can hear from me. Do you know what I mean? Like our MPs and MPPs don't get to decide whether we are able to communicate with them or their office directly. So it's it's definitely limiting access to members because we've seen recently, and Jay will testify, that any attempts to 
contact the executive more directly um, because often there's issues with staff. And so staff intercepting these emails uh, from the onset are, are a privacy problem for the, the members that are trying to reach their representatives directly. And um, I, you know, with the amount of trust that exists right now in the NDP, how do we know those emails are actually getting through to the folks to even make that choice? Um, not to mention whatever's in that email has then been revealed to a staffer, uh, an elected staffer. Yeah. And, um, and that's kind of like the point I was trying to make where I was like, okay, well then if that's, if we have all these admin committees and there's people like supposedly feeling this like work, like who, who are they? Like, I don't, I don't like. Who's behind the curtain, Nakua? I don't necessarily know or, or can maybe not even like know or relate to the person who might be intercepting those emails versus if the person just emails me directly. Now, if it's, it's one thing, if you just have access to that email and then the, and then it's another thing, if the, the representative decides to respond, but at least you can say that you were able to contact them directly and send them whatever it is that you need to send them. And then whether they respond is, is up to them. Like we can give people power and choice to do that. Like it's not, it's not always going to be people flooding those emails with spam or sometimes they just want, they just have a question or like, you know, the, the emails that we've received um, recently from some members um, of the disabled committee, like they were valid emails where they were trying to contact people and either people weren't responding. So out of desperation, we got one from Lulu, who's also been on your, your podcast, absolutely fabulous, fabulous, fabulous human. And all of the stuff that they've had to go through is just like incredibly disheartening. So thank you for having that um, that episode with them a couple of weeks ago, which was absolutely flabbergasted um, and wanted to like hug both of you through like my damn phone when I was listening to it. Cause like, yeah, there were, you were crying. They were probably tearing up and we were absolutely tearing up back here. So thank you for that. But like, for instance, when she sent her email to all of us, like, I was like, did anyone respond to you? And she's like, no, no one responded to me, but I just, I it's, I've been advised that it's been taken to the next step in the anti-harassment and I'm like really like I understand that we kind of have this issue where like people were upset that their emails were shared and I'm like I get that but like no one responded really you read an entire like essay about like harm and and things that have been happening in this party which again is public information if you go on Lulu's or anyone's um Twitter accounts of all the, the stuff that's been happening where that um, incident with um, one of the MPPs occurred towards the end of last year. Like that's public information, right? Like it's not like this isn't new information that just came forward through this email. So what I'm confused about is even if we weren't the direct, the correct people to which I responded, and I was like, I honestly, like, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't know the best way that this is going to be handled but it's not going to be directly through the executive and i was then told that this would this would the her complaint would be an anti-harassment um complaint where there's a separate process and i frankly i have no involvement in that um but really couldn't just be like no one could respond and say first of all like the first thing i said was thank you for writing this like the emotional labor and the emotional labor it took for her to write that email and to put everything in its entirety was a lot for her, like physically and emotionally. And no one wanted to even just write a response and, and acknowledge that. Like, where's the empathy? 
even if we didn't, if, even if we didn't have the best means or tools to solve the problem, which I very much said, I said, Lulu, I'm so sorry. Like, this is not something that is for the exec directly. To, like this, this is, this is some, this is next level. Like, because we also can't be dis discussing those things throughout our exec meetings. Like there's a separate process for that, which I then also found out, but I'm like, really? Like no one wanted to give you any direction or guidance of what you were supposed to do next. And that was what was upsetting to me that I brought up. That was the thing. I was like, it's fine if, if, if we say, you know, we don't have the best means to, to handle this, but respond. A person took time out of their schedule, out of, out of their lives that is that for something that's been impacting their lives that has occurred in this party that we are responsible for and no one responded. Like that's really gross. Total, like, because Lulu, Lulu isn't, doesn't just put emotional labor into no! that communication. No. Um, they have worked on endless amounts of successful campaigns, mobilizing members. But I think Akua, you know, she's been unfairly labeled with that same kind of combativeness that you kind of talked about at the beginning of this discussion, you know, it maybe not in your nature, but just having to go through these structures. And, and we've talked about this before on the show, where if you raise a point too many times, if you speak ill will of the party publicly, you essentially become persona non grata within the institution itself. I would imagine any people higher up in the executive are actually cautioned against responding directly to members um, because this isn't new to this executive. It was our experience with the previous executive, completely non-responsive. And I think most people, Akua, and according to our constitution, you keep talking about all these things being handled outside of executive and, and that's kind of disconcerting because it should reign supreme. These are the people elected by the members to essentially ensure the party runs well, is aligned with the values that we all signed up for, you know, kind of broadly speaking. Has that been your experience? When you sit in these executive meetings, meetings do you feel like not just you, but you as a group with your, your comrades there on the executive, are you driving the party in any way? So I don't know if just because of how we, the timing in which we formed the executive, that this has played out in the way that it has, but we haven't actually had much time to do the actual like governance and procedural and policy parts, which I, I actually enjoy like in, in general. Like I think it's, I, I, I think it's important to understand like how a party like that governs in all of these different committees and stuff like that. But because essentially we had our first meeting was it in uh, March or April? That was like our first like executive executive meeting. And a lot of it was like procedural stuff, which was fine. And then because, you know, the party decided to have a have convention like four months prior to an election, like everything's just been thrown out of loop. So all of the subsequent meetings that we've technically had have not been like full executive meetings. They've been like once regarding this like provincial council that's been coming up. And then we had one prior to the, um, election that was like election planning where they were like telling us about um i guess like the the leadership tour and and, and finances all and all of that so um i think just because of how like the positioning we're in right now and like 
the things that we now have to deal with in the aftermath of like needing to get a new leader and reshaping our party. Like, I don't think we're on the actual quote unquote regular trajectory of like where the executive would be had it not been like, had we not come together so quickly. And again, I don't know what had, what has happened previously. Everybody else seems to be very comfortable with the process again, because most of the exec is incumbents. Um, but I, I kind of would like to hear more from people who aren't incumbents about how they're navigating this space. And maybe that's why the executive member um, reached, who is, who is not an incumbent, uh, sorry, who is an incumbent, reached out to be like, hey, like if you need any assistance or whatever, like let me know. But I kind of want to hear more from people who aren't familiar with the process. And I want them to come forward and say, you know what, this is confusing to me. Because I'm very quick to say that I don't understand something. And I feel like in my meetings that that's been that. Like our first executive meeting, I think was like, what, four hours? And I probably asked a question like every 10 minutes. Because again, I, I need that. Like I need that to, and I think we can also really chalk that up to an accessibility issue, right? Like, yes, you provided all these documents, but the documents have not been ex ex explained. And I know we were going through the process and I was getting clarification on things, which is fine. But I also don't think that me asking questions should be seen as like a, a, a combative or a disruptive thing. Like I'm genuinely interested and frankly concerned about some of the things that have happened and I want more clarification. And I feel like if anything, as an executive member, I should be owed to that, nor would it be any different or would there be any expectation if a non-executive member of our party came forward to ask for that information. So I think it is also an accessibility issue. Um, I can read every document under the sun, but that doesn't mean I understand that document. And it, sh it should be a safe space for me to come forward and say, you know what, I've, you've, I've, there's this, you've given us this document with all of these things, here's the process or whatever, but you know, I still don't understand that. Or, or how can we change this process so that um, it makes more sense or it allows involvement for some of our, for more of the provincial council executive? Because it just, it seems like to me, and, and Jay made a really good point of this, that it seems very top down instead of bottom up. And I was like, yeah, I can, I can see that. Cause my understanding is, is like, let's say if, um, so for instance, like one of the big things was like the, this past like leadership, um, the interim leader where like, I guess we, the caucus had, had come up with Peter and then it came to us and then we were supposed to like support that or approve that nomination or whatever the fine wording was. And then we went to the provincial council who also like approved the nomination versus I guess the opportunity for people to have had nominations from the floor, um, maybe first. And then, you know, I don't know how that would have worked in terms of caucus suggesting someone amongst themselves and then provincial council picking someone amongst themselves. But I don't know. I feel like we should, somewhat remain neutral on a lot of things and, and maybe allow for more in, information sharing and suggestions as opposed to like, this is what it is, like, do, essentially, do you agree versus like allowing provincial council, I think more of an opportunity to not only come up with these processes and procedures, but then also suggest how the processes and procedures should take place um, to allow, I think, for more of a democratic process. Um, so yeah so yeah. we see this pattern of things being presented already structured to the executive written by unknown peoples right um presumably staffers it's presented to the executive first and 
you know, you talk about kind of challenges of getting to the bottom of some of these documents, you know, fully understanding them to make an informed decision, share with the people that you represent so that they can make informed decisions when council meets. And, you know, um, earlier in the episode, I know you, you didn't hear it, Akua, but Tara King comes on. She sat in a regional chair position like you on the executive not that long ago. And, uh, for over a year and it became clear, you you know, uh, we heard that it is a a top-down approach. It doesn't just appear to be, um, all of these, any attempts to change the processes that have been presented are very difficult. And I just want to hit on a few things before we, we go for sure. At first, when you say, you know, someone pulled you aside a little bit and said, like, if you need help understanding some of these processes, happy to spend some time. But are they pulling everyone aside? Because if you have questions, other people in the room probably have questions. And understanding that as a group is critical. Understanding it privately is not as helpful. And what if they didn't like you? Would they have pulled you aside or would you have just been left to figure it out on your own. Well, I should preface that this towards the end of the meeting, the individual came forward in the meeting and was like, Hey, if anyone has any questions, like I've sat on such and such committees previously, like I'm happy to share knowledge. And I think because again, they're very much getting the sense that I walk into these meetings and I'm frustrated every single time. And it shows from my voice and how I, how I am in the meetings that like, it's getting to a point where like, I don't know if other people find it disruptive and are reaching out to them to say so. So they're like, Hey, maybe reach out to this person. I don't know. Like I, I'm not taking it as any ill will from them. Like I think they're genuinely wanting to make sure that I understand and have support in navigating this process. So I appreciate that, but I don't know if they've reached out to other people privately after the meeting, they just sent me an email after saying that, Hey, if you want to sit down, I'm happy to do so. But they did also say in the meeting that if anybody else wants to do that, that they're happy to do that. So I think it was just a general thing. And then they reached out to me privately. I haven't responded yet because to be honest, I was like so tired from this damn wedding um, and had to go back to work yesterday. But um, I will reach out to them. Like I wanted, there's a, I, I think there's like a, an orientation that's of some points this evening. So I'm going to attend that and I will reach out to them to say thank you. And perhaps I will sit down with them at, at some point. Like I'm also trying to limit my time that I give to the party just with everything else going on and how emotionally draining it's been for the past couple of months. Um, but I did appreciate them um, reaching out to do that um, because, fr- frankly, at this point, I haven't had that from anyone else. That's that is encouraging. I just I hope that they are reaching out to the other uh, new folks on the executive as well, um, because. But the thing is, Jessa, no one yeah. else, from my understanding, comes forward in this in these meetings and say that they don't understand to where they even think it's a problem. So maybe because I'm the only one who's very vocal and says, listen. I'm confused. I don't understand what's happening. They've extended the olive branch, so to speak. But I, that's why kind of I was saying that like, I would like other people to come forward and say that they also don't understand. So it doesn't seem like I'm the only one being difficult. Like I genuinely feel that there's no way that every single person on the executive has a clear understanding of what is happening. So this, as you exactly, as you said, this should be a wider conversation that we're all having together. And even if it's repetitive for you, then that's fine. Like if we're an executive and we're supposed to be working together, how are we supposed to do that if not all of us are on the same page in terms of understanding the material that we've been elected to to govern with and 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 organize with? So Exactly. And then how do you present something to council when when you don't fully understand it yourself? 
But can you, I don't know if you want to wade into what your emotional labor has been like. Um, oh, oh gosh. If I, you wanna... know, you started very optimistic and yeah. you know, you've, you've talked about how uncomfortable it is, you know, being that angry black woman in the meeting and having to ask questions that, you know, other people need the answers to what, what does that do to you as a person, as an activist? Um, I don't know. Like, it's obviously frustrating. Like I'm definitely going into this space. I feel like I've just, I've come into this space with not a lot of understanding and there's already kind of been a, a structure put forth and there's an, there's an understanding from the people who've been there for X amount of years, how this is, this is going to go. But then again, how do you enact change and create process if not everyone is on the same page? And it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating. Like, I don't want to have to leave a meeting every time and feel like I just like was arguing the weight of the world on my shoulders for like an hour or two. Like I just, it doesn't. And then you got to do all these motions and the Roberts rules and all of that fun stuff. And then, you know, if you don't, if you don't ask about emotion or something, when it's presented, you can't ever, you don't ask about it again for such and such. Like, it's just, there's, I, I, I get the procedure of it. Like I understand like having an organizational process of those of a, of a meeting structure like that is important. But um, I also feel like, and I don't know why we don't have this at provincial council, or maybe I've just missed it. I don't understand why we don't have a parliamentarian or a counselor who's just there specifically to abide by, ensure we're abiding by Robert's rules and can recite the constitution like the back of their hands so that when there's, there's um, well, disagreement or clarification is needed, they're just there to have those. Like they have those at the school board meetings that I watch and, I think it's effective in terms of making sure that we're actually following process and procedure. Like, why don't we have those during our executive meetings for more clarification and for assistance so we can easily ask this person, hey, I want to ask such and such, is this within rules or whatever, or just to make sure that we're doing things correctly. And, and, and also make sure that we're like keeping with time because when we don't understand things that, which we, we saw last week with our provincial council meeting, like things are also um, delayed in terms of time. And I know that a lot of people take time out of their, through evenings to attend these meetings and and be productive and and speak on behalf of their constituents or whatever, but um, yeah, I don't I don't really have another way to describe it just as, as frustrating. I don't want to say demoralizing because I don't think it's demoralizing. Like I absolutely have a right to ask questions, and whether or not those questions are asked, I feel like in any way, shape, or form, I will ask them because it's important for me to do so for my own understanding, um, but also for the people who it is I'm interested to advocate for. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah. And then the, the kind of like the, what I find sometimes is when like, I feel like other people are questioning, like p other people are, it seems like they're either confused or upset as to like why we're questioning the process. I don't know if it's because the process works for them or they understand it better, but like, I also find that to, that to be a little disheartening as well. Like just because something we're used to doing something a certain way doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. And if someone is coming, whether it's from an accessibility um, or an equity lens or not to say that, you know, I don't actually think that this works for everyone. Is there a way that we can do it differently or involve more people who are actually impacted by the process to ensure we're making an informed decision? Like, I don't think that that's something that should be chalked up to well these people have decided on this, so therefore we should be accepting this, or this is how this has been done, so this is how we're going to continue to do it type thing. Like, you never get progress like that.
And then if we're not going to get progress, then there's no point of us having an executive, quite frankly. I question that a lot. I do appreciate you're there and asking questions. But, you know, from Tara's testimony that um, the provincial director, Lucy Watson, was able to delay convention and make contrary to her constitution and make other major decisions openly telling the executive that she does not need their approval to overrule the constitution. So um, I, I found that shocking because then it does beg the question, what is the point of the executive? And um, you talked about a parliamentarian. We do, uh, we should uh, have one on the payroll. I believe we do. They're most noticeable during convention, but funny, not funny. When there's the chair is challenged or where there is a question that would relate back to the parliamentarian, the chair actually discusses this in private with them and then comes back with the ruling. Very rarely are we presented with the parliamentarian and their explanation. So oh, I didn't even know. See, do, I didn't even know spare, that we do have that expense on the budget. Oh wow! And um, but it's not for us; it's for staff to consult, and they're not accessible, you know, to members or to the executive. From what I've heard from previous executives, so you're one hundred percent right, and it is it is part of how this organization should work. Except, like everything else, the access to that is limited and there is no transparency um, whatsoever. Um, does it surprise you the provincial director can override the constitution without the approval of the executive? Well, yeah, because then again, what's the point of us having, what's the point of us being there? And then what's the point of even having a provincial council? Like what's the point of having rules if the governing body, if the governing bodies that are elected or assigned to uphold said rules can't do so effectively because they can just be overridden at any time. Sometimes, I mean, if, we, if we're looking at it in, in the grand scheme of things in terms of how that structure is, like in terms of situations where, you know, it could cause like harm or there's a need to do it due to whatever unforeseen circumstances, fine. But these are situations where that's not that and there's no reason for us to, for rules to be overridden in that way without, be, without there being a democratic process. So. That's news to me. I don't really understand, appreciate, approve of, accept any of that. Um, well, maybe so, yeah, I just I, I don't know why we're not <laughs> consulting provincial council more in terms of these decisions instead of just like, again, giving them things and just being like, like, for instance, this debrief committee that I've constantly been bringing up does not make sense to me. Instead of saying that these are the people who are going to be on the debrief committee, why didn't we just vote on a structure of who should sit on said committee, which is what I suggested in a, in a motion that I recently brought up to include like people from every equity seeking group, making sure they're, they're current NDP members. Like, why did not we do something like that and put forth a, a, a suggested structure or composition and then have the actual provincial council like vote on them, like a little things like that, or even have, and it even would have allowed them an opportunity to be part of that committee, which I think is important in terms of the democratic process, because if we know anything about debriefing for this last election is how um, members of our disabled committee are going to be like, yeah, we definitely were consulted on things. Things weren't accessible. And look at the policies we put forward that were literally going to put us into legislative poverty. So, but we don't want to make sure that there's at least 
one or two people from that committee on the, like, it just, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense. No. Yeah. No, I, I feel your frustration and I've heard it from so many other folks that are either sitting on it now or have been, this doesn't seem to be unique to Ontario Akua because Jay speaks of very similar experiences around getting an email address to be accessible, getting information in time to process it before a meeting, having a nice safe space where asking questions is encouraged as part of the process. I mean, that just, it just, that doesn't seem to be the way it's done within the NDP at the moment. Um, I'm hopeful that with people like you and Kamal and Helen, um, especially here in Ontario, you know, pushing for answers, have great ideas for changes that we can make that would make it more democratic, more accessible to members. So, I, you know, I, 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 I know it's frustrating, but a lot of people do appreciate what you're doing. And I wish I was on that executive with you, Akua. I would be asking those questions. You wouldn't, I would not let you flounder. Like, not that you're floundering. That's such a bad, the way oh, that no, you have to stand out, you know, like the way you yeah. have to put yourself out there. It's uncomfortable. I I understand that. I don't understand it from, you know, as be, I'm not a black woman, obviously, yeah. right? I wouldn't have that trope attached to me. Um, but it does, it does break my heart when I hear that when we do get really good people on the executive, there's just not enough of them together to make them feel the strength they need to really do it, you know? Yeah. And I should know that no one specifically has made me feel like I'm being an angry black woman. That's just something that I personally feel like I am coming across. Like like that no one has said anything disparaging to me or anything of that sort. Like it's not like there's no abuse there. Like I just I want to preface that. Um because I'd be very honest, I actually don't know a lot of people on the executive. Like I would only interact with them during those meetings. I don't know what they've done previously and such like that. So I think there there also maybe maybe there's a need for us to be um us to get to know each other in a more social environment where we can understand where people are coming from. Because again, we only got to really hear about each other through our speeches and then we were would have would have been subsequently elected. So I actually don't know a lot of people I'm I've been elected to um organized with, which I think also makes a difference. Like I know Kamal and Helen, because I, I interact with them outside of um, executive, I've gotten to know them as people and they're absolutely phenomenal. But I think with that and perhaps what I'm like a little perturbed about is that like, if we've all run on this, this guise of wanting to be advocates and, and, and speaking up for our members and such, then like when I would say two of arguably the most impacted people on our executive, um, the, the the disability co-chairs are, are constantly coming forward and saying that there are issues with accessibility. It is not on them to be bringing that forward. It is actually our responsibility as people who are in the point of privilege to ensure that those voices and those concerns are being brought forward so they don't have to bear the emotional labor of having to advocate for basic needs. And that's what I... I'm confused about as to why I don't feel enough people are speaking out about. Again, maybe it's because their processes and procedures that they're already comfortable with, and I maybe I'm not. Um, but I would like, I would like more of that. Like it, it's not, it's not just the rules, right? Like it's how the rules are structured, it's how those rules get structured, 
it's who is involved in structuring those rules like that's like it's it's that piece um so that that's what's upsetting to me like they shouldn't have to bear it's the same thing if i was coming forward constantly about anti-black racism on whatever whether it was the executive or in the party in general that shouldn't be on me to bring forward or continue to have to advocate for it that should be on everybody else who is not black and and is a privilege because they're they're not black and have to face that to be supporting and bringing those those concerns forward or it, again if you were a member of the lgbtq plus you know what i mean like it just yeah. Yeah, so. that heavy lifting you always have to do, right? Especially in a progressive space of activists who should be able to recognize ableism, anti-Black racism, you know, when it's there. Um, and again, it's not coming from the executive. It's 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 bringing forth things that have happened outside of the executive to the executive to bring to the just like in terms of knowledge sharing. But yeah. Yeah. In terms of, yeah. And you, I think knowledge sharing and you brought up a good point about making connections with the your fellow organizers on the executive I think that would be a good place to start Akua but I'll tell you that's something you and your fellow executives would have to facilitate on your own mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you why I know that for sure because I spoke to a former MPP who explained just how these caucus retreats work and how MPPs were purposely siloed away from one another uh, throughout their term. There was no effort to connect MPPs together to even in a social way, in a knowledge sharing way. And when they attend these retreats, it is just like attending convention. Everything is scripted, orchestrated, access to the mic is limited. You know, speakers are already lined up to talk about how great that new idea from Andrea is, you know, and just like convention. And they're treated in the, a very similar way as executives and members when they show up. They're talked at and the space that they're given to express themselves is very limited and, and like I said, there's no attempt to connect them to each other so that the Black Caucus that formed, that was them making those connections themselves. That wasn't party facilitated and deeper connections across other, you know, whether it's regional or, or issue based just are not happening and there's no also no knowledge sharing from the members from the equity committees that we have to the MPPs that are tabling private member bills and trying to find solutions that would affect these marginalized groups. There's no attempt to use the membership or these committees as any kind of resource for the MPPs as well. So any kind of change that way or those connections that you want to make so that you guys can act as a team and, you know, maybe you could understand the folks around you, that will have to be that that labor that you do outside you know you're going to have to give that that much extra time if if that is to be a solution so you know like I don't... even if it's honestly even if it's just a zoom call on like a sunday night where everyone says like their favorite color like their favorite book something that's made them happy over the last week or so like just something like that like i don't know anything about anybody you know what i mean and i just i like it's it's awkward. Like it's not. I don't know. I just I think that's awkward. Well, it's easier to ask questions amongst friends. Yeah, absolutely. You don't you 
you know, that's why we make connections. That's what New Democrat was. You know, it wasn't it just put people together sometimes is really the biggest step you can take. And so, yeah, the most frustrating part is this limited access to people, to information. I mean, it just seems so counterintuitive to positive change, right? Like, I just don't know how we will accomplish great things if we don't take the great people on our executive and the members and put them together with the MPPs and, and be this like collaborative network that we could be. And it's so frustrating to hear, you know, processes and whatnot kind of getting in the way or, or, or being inaccessible. So, um, Akua, is there anything else as we kind of wrap up that you think folks would like to know or need to know about the power structure? That's really what this episode is mostly about is the power structure that's within the NDP and that has democratic in its name. I would say continue asking questions. Always, always ask questions. Never be afraid to ask questions. There's no such thing as a silly question, especially when it comes to organizational processes, policies, and procedures that impact your everyday life. And a lot of people don't think that, oh, well, you know, you don't have to be part of a political party. Apathy at this point in the game is, is I and I want to be very mindful about how I say this because I understand that people are are apathetic because of they've, they've been directly impacted by this. And I don't mean it for those people. I mean, people who are in a, a, a point of privilege, being ap apathetic at a time like this is like, it's not, we can't have that. Like the more people we have speaking up about these things, the better, because again, that's how we actually get change and that's how we get things done. And we need to be doing it for people who, because of how the processes and structures are put in place, are disadvantaged and are therefore apathetic. So continue asking questions. I don't care if we have to be on Zoom calls for provincial council all night. I'm sure at some point we'll all tire ourselves out and maybe just leave the meeting, but ask those questions. Because I guarantee if you're asking that question, somebody else is asking that question as well, to the point where I actually got two messages from people like privately on Facebook after that, our last provincial council being like, hey, thanks for asking that question. Because I wouldn't have thought to do so or I didn't feel comfortable doing so. So even if you don't think it makes a difference, if somebody reaches out to you after, it does make a difference. So continue to do so. And I'm happy to support anyone to bring forward things to executive that they want a clarification on or at, at any um, way, shape or form. I mean, that's why I was elected. I like being um, someone who helps others navigate spaces because I know how helpful it's been when people have helped me to do so. And so that's, I feel like what I was elected to do and that's what I'm here to do. So. Yeah. Thank you so much, Akua, for taking the time to come on here, because I think it will help folks navigate the space of the Ontario NDP, as well as the current work that you're doing. And um, just generally, I think partisan politics, it's important to kind of shed light on how parties work, how they form policy, how they make decisions, how they change who they are, and um, just exactly who is making those decisions. So eventually we'll get to the bottom of it, Akua. And I'm sure you're going to learn a lot more during your term as a Central East co-chair. Thank you very much for your time and for all of your efforts. And thank you so much, Jessa, for, for just like, honestly, just having the space that you do. I just, I can't, I can't stress enough to people how 
how amazing it is to have support from people in New Democrat, people I've never even met, like literally besides outside of that space, like you and I have never met. And I like consider you like a dear colleague who just like, anytime I need a clarification or something, especially you and Jay have just been so incredibly helpful. So I, I can't thank you enough for providing safe, accessible spaces for people to just be themselves and talk about how not even when it's just issues in the party, but just in general, like, I just, I don't think, I mean, you probably know how much of an impact you have already, but I just, I can't thank you enough for the space. Don't get me all emotional now. (laughs) I'm driven by the same frustrations that you, you feel. So I, I hearing that it helps is everything. You, You must know that. Right. So thank you. Thank you so much. So it was important to hear from Akua to hear about what drives people to get within the party structure to try to change it and their perspective on what it's like when you first get there. Now, next, we're going to hear from Tara, who's going to give us some concrete examples and instances that really demonstrate the power structure within the Ontario NDP, because what she provides are our ideas that were brought forth and and things that happened that should have been driven by the members but were essentially controlled by one person. And this position that we keep talking about that is so problematic is the provincial director position. And one exists on the federal level. Jay will get into that as well at the national director. And it is astonishing that within a democratic structure, one that then shapes the electoral left here in Canada, is so tightly controlled by so few people with such a lack of transparency. And I say that because most members are sitting out there thinking that they shape the party. Those petitions they, saw, they sign, the conventions they go to, all of that helps shape the NDP. Or maybe they think the leaders shape the NDP, but... There is just so much that is decided by one person. And, you know, so let's just listen into Tara. She provides testimony, so to speak, and I think it'll be quite eye-opening. Hi, everyone. My name is Tara King. Um, I have about four years of experience uh, within the party. Uh, I was a candidate in the 2018 election. I've been uh, president of our riding association, I was a rural rep for our region, um, a federal campaign manager, and then a delegate at uh, council. I attended convention as a delegate, and finally I sat on provincial executive. And so I just want to tell you a few stories of my experiences um, in basically uh, as uh, our regional rep on the provincial executive. So the first one I want to talk about is the uh, uh, situation that happened uh, coming outside of, coming after the anti-black racism training. That was a really great initiative, I want to point out. Um, And our disability rep at the time had made a motion to, uh, like on the floor of the executive, to um, uh, enact uh, or you know, have a report about how we can implement disability sensitivity training, which uh, I thought was a great idea, especially coming out of our anti-black racism training. It was a nice lead-in into um, continuing that sensitivity training 
at the and for specifically disability. Um, when the member made that motion, you know there was lots of issues around Robert's rules and how the motion was not proper, um, and that basically un that member uh, their motion was shot down, and that. I remember very vividly uh, that Lucy had said to this member, I'm going to, we'll connect privately uh, and you and I can discuss how we may implement something along these lines. So let's set up a, a time to talk privately, you and I. So I will leave that. Uh, another situation was um, some members from my region um, had reached out to me as their rep one of the reps to implement a women's organizer and an ethno-racial organizer, which have been on our policy book since 1980, maybe 1982, and saying, like, I think the ethno-racial organizer was 1986 was the first time it was uh, put into our policy book. However, uh, once the women's committee put the motion forward to uh, ask for a women's organizer and an ethno-racial organizer to be hired because we had heard time and time again about how we had all this money and uh, essentially the motion to hire a women's organizer and an ethno-racial rep or organizer was uh, basically shot down and I, looking back reading the motion now has nothing that says nothing about a women's organizer. Basically the motion was reworded uh, to say um, and I sent this to you, Jessa, you can read it if more context is needed. Uh, basically, uh, the, the, the Women's Committee was asking the director, Lucy Watson, to write a report about how the party applies an equity lens to everything we did. So the essence of the motion totally was removed. Um, and that at convention, the... That was one of the first um, policies to be sunshined was the women's organizer. So it's no longer on our policy book. The next thing I want to talk about is the convention that was moved from September 2021 to February 2022. And I understand that there's an overall understanding that the executive, provincial executive made that decision. And I want to be clear that um, that was not executive's position at that time. We were presented with that option by Lucy, and Lucy had talked about a number of reasons why uh, it was important to move convention from September 2021 to February 2022. The most, in my opinion, at that time, important at the top of Lucy's list was that we would have the ability to likely meet in person at that time. I also very clearly remember a colleague suggesting, this was right before Provincial Council, suggesting that as the executive, we write a report supporting Lucy's decision to move convention from September 2021 to February 2022. To which Lucy responded, no, that's not necessary. I don't need your report. This is, this is an action that I can take without your support, essentially. No, maybe not in so many words, but that was the message we received. So no, no recommendation was written from the executive because it was going to happen regardless. There was no vote on moving that. 
um, no members on the executive had a vote to move convention. I want to be very clear about that. The last thing I want to point out was that we revoked two memberships on that one year time that I was on executive because I was in, in like a by-election. So I only had, you know, a year and a bit remaining. And um, so we revoked two memberships. I won't talk about the specifics, but one of the members that had their membership revoked asked for an independent review. So Mary Rita did the investigation. She determined that um, those memberships should be revoked. Um, and then when those members asked for, that one member asked for an independent review, it was determined that Lucy Watson would be completing that independent review. Um, of course, I pointed out that I didn't believe that that was uh, a viable option as that was not an independent review. So in my experience sitting on uh, provincial executive, I felt that I was always being talked at, that there was no real effort to hear what each rep um, was bringing to the table. Our conversations were muted, and we have to remember that during this time, um, was during COVID, so every meeting was on Zoom. We were not meeting in person at all. Oftentimes, uh, regional reports and sometimes equity reports were cut short uh, because we ran out of time. And looking back at some of the agendas, like even allocating the time was like 10 minutes for reports. And this is reports to our director and our president and um, certainly not enough time to communicate these very, if we are important aspects of the functionality of this um, organization is bringing our voices from our regions or equity groups, is that not the purpose to hear what we have to say? Um, so I also remember, uh, so I guess this would be another example, was that Lucy had instructed all the, the reps or executives not to ask staff to do too much uh, for us if we needed something because they were already tied up doing other very important things, which to me communicated that there, we were not important. What we needed from staff, um, we weren't considered important. Um, and so what we had to say, therefore, was not important. Um, so as the Southwest rep, one of them, I did take every opportunity to take up space for our region that I was representing. I thought that was very important. Um, so if you ever remember going back to any of the provincial councils, I always made a verbal report um, because that was the only time that I could represent the region um, effectively. Outside of that, even at provincial councils, our reports would be cut short to make space for the president's report or the leader's report or uh, something else. And so our reports would just be filed in the paperwork that I don't know if anybody ever even looked at. Um, so I did ask at one point to be connected to the other regional reps because we didn't even have that connection on executive. And um, that was one of the last meetings that I went to. And um, because at the end of October, I essentially stepped away from my my executive duties. 
and never got communications from anyone about how we could connect or emails, um, you know, or, or that they even wanted to connect or that we could have a connection outside of executive and have meetings outside of executive. So, you know, um, we could talk about how our regions were similar, how they were different, how uh, instead of taking up, you know, time reporting things that are happening across Ontario as opposed to just regions. But um, unfortunately, that never came to fruition. So we, I also have a note here about accessibility. Uh, we requested uh, accessibility to non-delegates for provincial council and even conventions so that non-delegates, especially because it was virtual, that non-delegates could attend especially uh, committee meetings and um, regional meetings. So of course, if they can't afford to attend provincial council or convention, that they can still participate as a member and it doesn't cost them anything. That was really important to me. But I think that uh, because of Zoom, that was implemented, I think, at one of the last provincial councils, but I'm not sure if it's going to continue outside of, you know, now COVID is uh, allegedly over. <laughs> um, so... The last thing I want to point out is that I understand that there are criticisms uh, around us speaking out about publicly criticizing the party and speaking out, out about the problems within the party. And I want to say, take this opportunity to say that it's my party too. I'm a member, I'm a paying member, and I'm not happy about the way things are. And I spent four years in the party. Uh, at the beginning, I had said I was a candidate, president of the Riding Association, rural rep for the region, federal campaign manager, delegate at council, and then finally sat on provincial executive because, and I did that because I seen problems coming out of the 2018 election. Um, something is what seemed very, you know, big to me, but probably small to the leaders that I didn't even receive a phone call until October to thank me for running. And in a volunteer-run organization, it's very important to thank your volunteers, and it costs nothing. So instead of doing nothing about these problems that I've seen back in 2018, I felt like by sitting on these committees, being active in the party, I felt that at least now I was doing something about it. And I tried to affect change from the inside, um, but the problem is deeply systemic. Membership does not have the power. The Ontario NDP is authoritarian. The membership has this illusion of power, right? Just like, yeah, but the reality is that only a couple people at the top are dictating and holding all the control. Thank you, Tara. Um, I wonder if you knew, and I believe this, you know, sometimes council can be a blur, but I believe they voted to keep um, provincial council virtual. Like indefinitely. Yeah, it just it's cheaper and it allows people from across the province. But we also have to remember it allows them to keep that chat close and mute us um, and decide who gets to get up at the mic without anybody knowing, uh, you know, who's waiting. Yeah. So it's and I, much easier. I believe in accessibility and having that option, but I, I believe it can be achieved through a hybrid version of provincial council. Those that can afford to attend in person, um, or can attend in person logistically should be available or should be able to 
do that in order to make those connections because that's how I met people um, and found like-minded people. Uh, when you restrict the flow of information and those connections, you're just creating a bubble of people that aren't going to challenge the status quo. Well, you hit it right there, right? Some people think it's just a lack of resources or, you know, they just don't have, you know, forward-minded organizers leading the pack. But the reality is it's it's definitely a deliberate control and a siloing uh, because, you know, I don't know um, if we'll use this on this show, but uh, talking to let's just say a, a former MPP about what the environment is like for them. And I think I was shocked to learn that they are also siloed from us and from each other. It's not encouraged that they talk to each other outside the official channels. The retreats that we hear about are really just as work. It was described to me as just like council, just like convention. It's just completely orchestrated. Whoever's going to talk that's been lined up ahead of time. It, there's, you know, it's, they have almost a very similar experience. And I think I was naive. I thought that they would be a little more empowered than us, but it really just is those, that handful of folks, some we know their names, some we just kind of know by reference, but yeah, I, I was shocked. So. And I, I, I agree with you, Jessa. Like, was I just naive coming into this in 2018 and being like, or did they do a really good job? Uh, advert, uh, I guess, like spreading information, misinformation about how the structure of the party and how we're a party for the working class. And uh, I, I, they did a really great job pulling the wool over my eyes. And so I was quite surprised, even during the 2018 uh, election, uh, reaching out to Central, like asking for, you know, print material. Can you make this? Can you make that? I really thought my honest thought was that the riding associations ran the campaigns with the support of central um, or because I'm an educator <laughs> Depends on where you live, Tara. yeah exactly I'm an educator so in my brain there's no reason to reinvent the wheel like we've done this before why isn't there something system like a, a, a program in place do this do X Y and Z if this is what you need radio ads this is where you go to this is the rates for across the province why are we reinventing the wheel, the campaign wheel, every election? So I'm all about working smarter, not harder. But when you're not listening to members and their ideas, how do you change if you're just going to continue doing the same thing over and over and over again? And I think that that was really, I know that was really frustrating for me. I had sacrificed four years of my life, time with my children, time with my husband, time that, with my students, um, that I could be, even time in my community that I could have been putting that time in in my community to improve the community that I live in, as, to, as opposed to uh, putting the time into this, this party that I feel like was fabric, a fabrication of lies. You, you say one thing there that kind of hit on something, I think it was a tweet this morning, but you know, it's something I've heard many, many, many times, and I can't help but buy into it myself is, you know, the criticism or the conspiracy theory that the NDP essentially just sucks the energy of the left and allows them like hamsters to just spin needlessly and tirelessly and with no 
momentum. Like it just, there's no gain rather. And you talked about like not having to reinvent the campaign plan. And folks were also talking about not needing to reinvent the platform every four years. I mean, we've not made that many gains. We still have the same goals of expanding the public sector and, and you know, all that jazz. And quite literally, it seems like it's thrown together at the last minute with, you know, piecemeal stuff. And we know why, right? Well, there's so many that that's another discussion altogether, but it's, yeah, there's just so many parallels. Like, it's just like this pattern that applies. Yeah. I really like, thought, what do you think? I really thought that it, it, sitting on executive, I was going to be able to be like, uh, do more for my community. And I was the rural rep. Like I live in Oxford. We are an agricultural community. Um, and I was like, okay, we need in order to win these rural communities, we need to focus on a rural strategy. And it just blew my mind that, like, do they not know that we need to focus our some of our policies on that to reach those voters? Um, or are they ignorant or do they not want to listen? Like, I didn't understand. And that was really frustrating to me. And um, so, yeah, you just, like, you get, uh, what is the word? Like, just ground down until there's nothing left of you and you're drained your energy tank is drained and um why continue to put that effort or investment into something that you're not getting a return on that investment i'm not making change for my community by being um the rural rep or sitting on provincial executive or being, I'm not making change that way. I'm not affecting any real change for my community. So I had a really, really hard time in this 2022 election because I was trying to take a stand and not assist with the, the campaign. Like it wasn't that I brought all these volunteers. I think these volunteers at, in Oxford brought themselves, we all came together with a common goal. At the 2019 convention, maybe it was 2018, whatever that convention was, uh, year, we brought 11 delegates from Oxford. And I remember... To Hamilton? Uh, yeah, to Hamilton. We brought 11 delegates from Oxford. We didn't have that many members to have that many delegates, but we just borrowed you know, delegation status from other riding associations. We had 11... Oxford members there and we were all young like I would say all under 40 years old I say that's young so and um, some as young as 16 years old 16 or 17 years old and I remember Jesse McCauley saying like uh, at registration how did you get this many delegates here well, like do you really want to know no she didn't want to know <laughs> like, it was just you know how did you do it well I have the answer but you don't want to listen to me. I didn't say that at the time, but looking back, I'm like, I could tell you, like, we just had a commonality. We had the same goals. We were further left-leaning than what the party is, and we wanted to make those changes. We saw that there was some hope. We all had hope. We all had this drive and this passion to make our community better, and not one of, uh, not one of those people Yes, sorry, I lied. One person remains on executive from those 11 people. And it's just so it's sad, right? Um, they just push out those activists. It's the same. Yeah, like Tara, that's almost the copycat story of my writing, although we didn't have, I think we only had five delegates at um, 
in Hamilton in 2019, but just the, you know, when we became like openly socialist, so I ran twice as an open socialist, right? And it was incredible that our executive grew with young folks that were willing to put in the work. Uh, but then it became clear we would just keep butting up against bureaucracy. And I was perfectly candid with my group, you know, when um, HQ would would do what they do. And we just kept losing them. And times are tough, too, right? People needed to work when they didn't want to work. And COVID, you know, pulled a whole new thing. But, yeah, it really has dwindled. And I could not participate in the 2022, in the most recent elections either. There was no way. Um, I could not, for one second, tell anyone to vote for Andrea and her team, knowing what they had done to my friends. Knowing how they run a a government within themselves, I fear, actually. Because I've talked to people who have worked in other parties at, like, just very candid conversations off the record They've never seen anything like this. This is not normal. This And, and I think it's because they have to manage a lot of activists. So like liberals are just like, oh, everything's gravy, Canada. And then, the, you know, the right is like, I won't even get into that. But I mean, they're not pushing for real change. And, and, and you know, they're not rabble rousers. And speaking truth to power doesn't come maybe so naturally to them, right? They, they're okay with an authoritarian structure. Uh, but, you know, we are not. And, and their response is to just crack down. And yeah, it's the stories are just endless. So we've heard from Akua, the perspective of, of somebody new to the Ontario NDP executive. And we heard from Tara King, who immersed herself in the executive and demonstrated just exactly how it operates and how the power structure is completely top down. Now we're going to talk to our old friend Jay. Jay was on our previous episode talking about the candidate crisis and he's back on to share his perspective as an executive on the federal NDP. Welcome back, Jay. Thank you. You've told us before, but can you remind us just what is your role federally and how did you get it? I am a federal executive by way of being elected a co-chair of the Federal Disability Committee. I am also now co-chair of the Accessibility Committee and a council member. All right. And you also have experience on the Ontario NDP. So, you know, when we when we talk about the two women's experience uh, that were on earlier, it, that won't be new to you either as a, a federal executive or as someone who has seen kind of exactly what happens firsthand at Ontario Provincial Council. Now, Akua shared her perspective on being new to the game, so to speak, and the the frustration that she experiences navigating all of the processes. And what was, I mean, this is your first term on the federal executive. What was it like for you to enter that space? Was it welcoming? Did you understand what you were getting yourself into and how you would insert yourself or, or did you have to navigate that yourself? I got courted by the party and different members um, through my advocacy on disability-related topics. 
So getting elected co-chair of the disability committee, which also makes you uh, an executive, I genuinely thought that I would be able to not not take control of the many issues because that that convention where I was elected was an ableist nightmare. They had to give refunds to disabled delegates. They had to apologize. Like it was horrible. So coming through that traumatizing experience, and I am the executive by way of the disability committee. I thought accessibility, disability, it's going to get dealt with as being elected the the top member voice in that and having a presence on executive, everything is going to have a disabled perspective. So that's what I was going into. And I went into it with that being my guiding process where I, I had itemized this long list of these are the things that's going to get dealt with. And not knowing, you, you don't get some kind of welcome booklet. They don't tell you this is your role, this is your duty. They don't they don't give you any actual onboarding. It's just a welcome meeting where they don't focus on business. They focus on, hey, high five everybody. And that's pretty much what every meeting since has been. So I Every I really, meeting of the federal executive? Oh, any meeting that staff put together anywhere. But yes, um, it has been, I, I have been absolutely, I am so confused as how people can form the executive and we had the federal election, a, a time when it's go, 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 let's accomplish our dreams. And there was such a lack of desire. There is such a lack of passion and no one seems to have any interest in actually doing anything. Everyone seems to be filling a role of placeholder. Interesting. I, I kind of did a little chuckle there. I don't think I realized that they had uh, folks within the establishment had courted you because uh, Akua shared the same thing. And I think to myself, did they understand what they were doing? Um, I, I imagine anyone that encouraged the two of you to join the executive um, perhaps is now regretting it, considering the drive that you two have to actually make reforms. That's troubling, Jay, because I think if you talk to most members, as we do, you know, um, Jay and I, that's almost feels like all we do sometimes is talk to folks about how the party can change. And it's it's clear to most people there's just like a lot of work to be done. And I think when we elect these folks and they give these great speeches that we think that they understand this too and they must see that we are a losing party. So clearly there's work to do, but Akua had the same impression, a bit of apathy, it is what it is, and and you describe it as a placeholder. Are you satisfied with the role as a placeholder? Um, I think the better way of framing that actually is the executive is tokenized members because we all come from regions. We come from equity committees. We come from very specific demographics and it's kind of, well, they exist. So shut up. 
So a, a placeholder would actually be the wrong way of saying that because that means like holding a place for someone else to come do something like in on, Ontario, Peter Tavins is currently a placeholder for whoever is elected, but that leader is going to do things. So to be a placeholder is to hold the spot for, yes, is to hold the spot for someone who's going to come do things, but that's not really what we're doing. We are Jay, are you a mascot right then? Because is that a better <laughs> word? Yeah, you throw that word a lot around when we talk about political leaders. I'm not a mascot because I don't sit there going rah, rah, rah. We are amazing. Join us. You're we supposed no to, wrong. though. I'm sorry, not supposed to. That's what ex is expected. <laughs> I'm just teasing you. You know that. Yeah, okay. absolutely. But the, the reality is you're teasing staff and certain members of the executive. That's exactly what they expect. Show up, cheerlead, go away. So I want to get into something because when we spoke to Akua, she talked about asking questions. So, you know, there was no real onboarding to explain all the processes, how one would, you know, get a motion onto the agenda so that they could be heard. Really simple things like that. And how that made her feel as a person, you know, how, you know, she described it as, you know, being that angry black woman in the room. Now, she said that nobody there had made her feel that way, but that there's a certain uncomfort level with always having to be the one asking the questions. Now, has that been your experience? How have you... Now, I know you, and anybody who's listened to the show knows you a little bit. And, and of course, I was teasing Jay when I asked him if he'd be content being a placeholder, because no, you clearly... You, you talked about having a real mission in place and drive to, to make change. Now that you're there and been a little bit stymied, you know, how, how has the party structure made you feel? So with, with what Aku was explaining, I am the annoying disabled guy. Oh, okay. And I'm not saying that this is she said it so perfectly no one is specifically making me feel like i'm the annoying disabled guy but the result of the way they have treated me when everything i am doing is trying to make the party more accessible for members to target the disabled community with messaging and to empower them and i'm blocked and i'm rejected and i'm ignored and stonewalled and all of that, you're, you're left to identify yourself what they're doing this for, because it makes no sense. So for me, I'm used to ableism being what people, what, I, I don't know how to say this, um, not the motivation, but the, the dismissals and, and all of that stems from ableism. So the way that I am treated by staff and the executive, the only thing I can think of is, oh, it's the disability guy. Yeah, I think that's exactly how Akua feels like nobody has provided any kind of label, but that it doesn't sit well. It doesn't seem to be 
what other folks had intended the space to be, you know, to be questioning, to be asking for accountability, more transparency, and that you actually come off as annoying rather than doing your job, right? I think most people would expect you to ask these questions as their representative or to demand certain accessibility requirements. Um, but instead you're treated almost like an, a nuisance, right? Um, a problem in the agenda rather than a meaningful part of it. A perfect example is when we were talking about candidates and vetting and all of that, I had a large number of disabled identifying members who were trying to seek the nomination. They were either not given a package or not vetted. Now, when asking and dealing with the, the party on why it seems like so many disabled identifying members are not being rejected or are being rejected, if they're not willing to explain it to the people they are not vetting, they are left to determine why. And the thing that they have suffered the most discrimination or hate or attacks from is what they're going to assume. So for disabled seeking, can or can people seeking the nomination who are disabled, who get rejected with no explanation are going to feel it's ableism. So when you don't explicitly state, why are you treating me like shit? I'm left to determine why. And the main reason I have been treated like shit in many different spaces is I'm the annoying disabled guy. They have an agenda set out, very specific. Here's your rubber stamp, here's your rubber stamp. And then I say, um, hold on. And I come at it from a, a disabled perspective and it annoys people, their coffee's getting cold, their dinner's getting, whatever it is, whatever reason they don't want to actually discuss the agenda. I'm the annoying guy who brings up accessibility and disability. So I am actually filling my role properly and it really annoys and pisses people off. So if if the executive is in practice a rubber stamp, you know, where where questions and are treated as interruptions, who is making the decisions then? Who what are you rubber stamping? So uh, a very important note, um, a lot of people who make up the Ontario NDP make up the federal NDP. A large bulk of staff are uh, federal staff and, and people are affiliated in some way with the, or not affiliated, active in the Ontario NDP. So a lot of these issues are, are shared. And a lot of the processes, proceed, whatever it is, uh, are the same. And I don't understand how the members feel like the body that they elect, the executive, to represent all members in all matters in dealing with the party, the group that can hire, fire the provincial director or the federal director is there to be dictated to by the party. So the accountability group, the executive, 
is supposed to work with the staff on good and instantly remove the bad. But somehow we have, and, and to talk about the situation with the leadership race in Ontario, it explicitly states in the proposed rules that the director has the ultimate authority on who can and cannot run when our constitution should not be overruled by a employment contract. So I, it, it doesn't state anywhere that the director is this magic overlord, but yet they're the ones who present things to the, it, they present it as if they are giving the executive choice. When the executive doesn't need their choices, doesn't need their permission. We dictate, to, the executive dictates to the staff. Because it, I, I, you haven't heard her testimony explicitly, but Tara talks about Lucy Watson completely being candid with the executive that she did not need their approval. So even, you know, when it got down to the nitty gritty, um, there wasn't even a facade anymore. You know, she was in front of the executive. The executive were willing to give her a rubber stamp in the form of a, a, an approving letter to move the convention date. And, and her response was, I, I don't need it. Thanks. Thanks. But no, thanks. Um, Imagine a staff, a staff member doing that because again, the executive can fire the provincial director and the provincial director is saying, I don't need you. I don't need your permission. My contract overrules your constitution and the word and wishes of thousands upon thousands of members. I just want to remind people, like, back to the, the previous episode where we did the candidate uh, crisis and it was clear and, it, you know, laid bare that it is two people within the party that get to determine every single candidate who is good, who is bad, who gets to run and whatnot. We went into a lot of the issues there. So just to be clear, that same person, the provincial director, now gets to determine who the next, who can even put their hat in the race to be the next leader of the party, as well as they seem to have crafted the rules of such ahead of time. We're not going to get into all of those rules, right? We'll have another episode that talks about internal elections and, and democracy like that specifically. But I think to anybody who's heard that previous episode and understands democracy that sounds really problematic um is she not choosing her next boss in essence the the thing is she's telling her current bosses which are the executive and therefore council and all members that she gets to determine who we choose as our leader i know you say the executive can fire and and you know by constitution how is that possible if the director can override the constitution? Uh, wouldn't they be able to manipulate any process that would, would be set up to remove them? There is a petition and full disclosure. I authored it calling for the uh, resignation or removal of the provincial director in Ontario. More people have signed it than are members of the executive. 
And I spoke with the interim leader about tabling a motion. Here's the petition. It was reviewed. And he said, well, well, sorry, I don't have the authority or the the process to remove this person. The executive does. So I posed him the question of, well, how do the members have their say when the executive is not tabling the motion, not hearing the motion? They're not even accessible. I was told that now I have to send an email to a party-controlled executive at OntarioNDP.ca and hope that the staff give that message to whomever it is supposed to go to. Akua touched on that, uh, gave out that email address if folks ever wanted to get in touch. And clearly, that's a problem when we're talking about issues with senior staff and, and them now being able to filter through emails and pass them on at their whim. That's, I want to just note, side note here. I had gotten a list of emails for the Ontario executives and I sent them my petition and the request to add the motion to the upcoming council agenda to vote on removing the provincial director. So How what was it that received? Angrily. Um, it is not... It, it, there was supposedly a backlash for the executive because they just assumed that it was an executive who shared it when it wasn't. But because they do not have any way for members to get in touch with the people they elected to represent them, they got angry and are investigating how I got those emails. And now they've got this gatekeeping at, or sorry, executive at Ontario NDP, whatever, so that they are in control of how members communicate with their elected representatives. Sounds like a thriving democracy. Yeah. So let's say we're examining the federal party just for a moment and forget about what it's supposed to be. Forget about what the constitution says in your mind, after sitting on the federal executive for the NDP, who runs the show? Being wholly ignorant of what goes on behind the closed doors. Okay. That, that we speak out against all the time. And there's many closed doors. I understand that. The person at every door, the person between, I'll speak from my personal experience, the person between me and all these decisions that are being made that we should be informed of and have input on is the, the federal director. So it's not, it's not the president, it's not the leader, it's not staff on the leader, the person who is always traffic controlling, who gets in, who doesn't, is the director. That's a perfect uh, analogy there. So I think most people would assume, you know, because when we have gripes with the party and we've got gripes, we typically, and we, and I, I mean just the broader membership, typically blame the leader, right? That's the most front-facing. We'll, so federally, we'll, we'll, we'll chirp at Jagmeet online, or we blame Andrea for the poor election results. And I think it's important that people know that although 
bad leaders allow bad management around them. They're not the ones that are actually making any of these decisions. I've spoken to MPs and MPPs who have provided a bit of an insight into caucus. I've shared some of those here, but it is very similar to our experience as members where access to decision-making is tightly controlled, that agendas for meetings are set well ahead of time with no intention of it being altered to any great degree. And Akua mentions like not really understanding where any of these processes come from. You know, maybe Lucy hands it to the executive, but she knows the provincial director's not sitting there crafting all of these by themselves. And so even people that are within the executive don't understand exactly who is making all of these decisions and who is structuring the internal democracy of the party. Because most people would think that happens at convention. I mean, we don't have enough time to get into that farce. But front-facing, with very little exposure, one would think members are playing a role in this party. But, you know, from talking to Akua, from hearing the damning testimony from Tara on how any efforts from the executive, uh, which were bolstered by the Constitution, were vetoed, it's clear that it's just a very small group of people making the decisions. And we're not completely sure who all is involved, but we just know who is not, right? And that's, that's the members. Now, you went in with a mission, and I know you. You know, you're idealistic. You, you have a, a vision of how it should be, and you're pretty determined to get there. How has it been for you? Uh, Akua talked about emotional labor involved and how, you know, one would have to limit their exposure to the party like I have or, you know, the heavy lifting that needs to get done and, and how that wears on you. Can you dip into the personal a little and tell us what has that done to you as an activist, as a person who has gone into a so-called progressive space with great ideas bolstered by the members. You know, you were voted by them. They had confidence in you to do this. And you've, you've hit a lot of brick walls. You've had, you've had some success. I don't want to diminish that and please, you know, share them with us if you'd like to do that. But to a large part, it's been frustrating for everyone we've heard from today and beyond what is that doing to you as a person and an activist? Is it tearing you down? Is it building you up? Give us some insight, Jay. So I'll give a couple of quick uh, examples. So instead of just saying this is how it impacts me, my first fight was for an email. Uh, an or, uh, NDP got CA email so that the members who elected me and any member as an executive, every member has a right to, to me. It took me months to fight for that email, for an email. And then from there, it was fighting to get the party to bring up the struggles of the disabled community leading up to and during the election. And then it's about making sure that events are actually accessible. And uh, there was a fight 
to have during the nomination meetings, fundraising events, and all of that of the lead up to and during the federal election to have an input field. So not demanding that they actually accommodate every accommodation request, just to have an, a simple field added to NDP events was a few months and a lawsuit in order to, or a threat of a lawsuit from a human rights lawyer to actually get an input field on events. Just to, I just want to clarify what that is. So, you know, when you register an event and they ask you your name and your email, often in good organizations, there's a question on what can we do to help you access this meeting better? You know, whether that's closed captioning, materials in advance, you know, there's a space, a field for you to then say what you need to be able to fully participate in that event. Okay, just for listeners. And this is coming off of when I say I was courted to, to, to run, this is members of caucus, this is candidates and members of the party in, in many different capacities, building up this, you will do so good in that space, you're going to be able to actually give a pipeline for the members to like, have their say and be heard. And I went in there thinking accessibility isn't just a, a disability related issue. So I'm going to present it to them. They're going to love it and we're going to start making the party better. So it's not about me trying to do all of these self-serving things. It's about, hey, I want to help this party have more members and be better and not break either human rights laws or in Ontario, the AODA, like there's rules about or laws about not discriminating against the disabled community by being inaccessible. So then I have had the laundry list of reasons and dismissals and ignored emails. Each time it is me talking with like-minded people who want this party to be better and win. These are people who are marginalized people who have fought for space and access and information. And now, and I've posed this to some of these people. And what I say is you, in, in your fight to get to where you are, you have sat across a table from someone who is saying the most disgusting things to you and hurt you so deeply and you would go home that night and just sit there broken, depressed, crying, emotional about why are these people doing that? And what you have done is you've gotten up and you conquered it. You took that chair from the person who was sitting across from you, but now you're doing the same thing to me. It never lands well. They obviously don't want to talk to me after. But that's the reality check that a lot of these people need, is they have become what they hated. They so say that, that often happens, you know, with power, right? Like that is one of the big critiques of power. It breeds corruption, right? It breeds... I, go ahead. I it see... That to me, like, yes, there's merits to that, but that removes the individual choice and responsibility. These people are making the choice to do that. 
So is it power corrupts or power brings out the corruption that already existed? Because someone with morals and ethics, I don't see them being corrupt, especially when, in all honesty, we're talking about executives and staff members. These people aren't powerful. Maybe if we won an election, they could consider themselves powerful, but we're not even the opposition. But, but Jay, I think to members, though, they are powerful in that they act as impenetrable gatekeepers at the moment, right? Like counts, you know, I'm just going to quickly share. I was really, when Andrea resigned and, you know, 10 days had gone by and we hadn't had one email from the Ontario NDP. Uh, side note, you normally get at least three asking you for fundraising or, or, or whatnot a day. But we had had nothing. Not provincial delegates had no idea what was coming. We had no idea how we would choose a new leader. Nothing. So post-election, it's just a communication blackout. And when we tried to press the president of the ONDP, their response was, it's up to staff. We, we do not get a meeting until staff sets a date. We don't get um, any kind of movement until staff are ready. And, you know, they hid behind staff needing to rest and whatnot. We, we know how they treat their employees there. That, that, that's not the issue. So they, they may not be powerful in the Canadian political spectrum, but in terms of all these people that we know that are trying to instill socialism in the party, who are trying to advocate for disability rights in the party, who are fighting anti-Black racism in society and within the party, and they're blocked, right? They're blocked by these staffers. And, and those same staffers delayed the convention. And I keep coming back to that, and people might roll their eyes, but... That was essentially one of the downfalls of our losing to Ford was that we were forced to take Andrea into the next election because they pushed the date back so far that there was no way we were going to change horses in the middle of the stream. They had already dedicated advertising revenue to Andrea's ads. They had been recorded for heaven's sake. And so, you know, that had a huge political cost that's power that they have, right? So if they have that power within the party, maybe not outside the party, but it does play into it, what's the point of the executive, the, the democratically kind of elected executive? What's the point of it then? So the executive is made up of members. Council is made up of members, the equity committees, members, the riding associations, members, 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 members. And staffers. Nope. Well, they are in those spaces, members. Staff is only supposed to be there to support. So if we have a nomination meeting, they support. If it's an annual general meeting, they support. Convention, support. Council and executive support. Those are member spaces. Those are not staff spaces. So the point of the executive and the, and I, sorry, I just, I can't let it go. You had talked about uh, members view the staff as being the powerful people, but that only exists 
because members allow it to. These are our employees. So when, when we talk about, well, staff dictates this, 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 when did we ever as a membership through council approve of that? Why don't we have access to the explicit duties, rights, and powers of the provincial director? And if they can do whatever they want, why in the proposed rules for the leadership race do they have to seek council's permission to add the rule of they get the ultimate say of who can and cannot run? So it does take a lot of complacency from members. And the executive, for them to say, oh, well, the staff have to do this, this, and this. Well, yeah, they have to because that is their job. By the way, you are the boss who dictates to them. So it's the point of the executive is truly to remind staff that the members are in charge and to look out for the, to make sure that it's a democratic, open, transparent process for the members who do the work to get staff paychecks. So the, the executive is the council outside of convention conventions, the largest gathering of members. It's the most powerful body in the political structure of the party. Council exists between conventions as the ultimate power. The executive cannot do things without permission of the council. Council is the largest democratic body. It is the most powerful. So all of these power structures that exist are somehow beholden to the people who are employed by these bodies. So huge, it makes no sense. It it yeah no like it there's like a, a a purpose to the executive and then there, there's what it is in reality and I think you make a great point that this imbalance of power only exists through the complacency that's the word that you use and I think it's bang on of the members. Um, I don't want to blame members because I think a lot of it has to do with not understanding how the party works. And we've seen a lot of people like Tara and myself go in, get burnt out and be tossed aside. And so it's hard, right? It's hard to be persistent in these spaces. It's hard to exercise your power when you don't fully understand it. So I hope some of these episodes start to allow folks to understand how partisan politics work on the left, how people are trying to insert themselves to make change, how they're being thwarted, and hopefully through these trial and errors, and we can follow up with what we can do from here, right? So although this episode had very few bright spots in terms of disrupting as we try to do the status quo within the party. Um, it's good to know that there's people like you and, and Akua, and we know that there are other good members that are on there. 
within the party structures fighting for change. Um, down the road, we'll go coast to coast. We'll talk to people from BC and from the Atlantic and in between on just to demonstrate like how this is a pattern that is replicated and how other people are fighting back within this system so that they can reclaim these member spaces and then thus the electoral left, right? So that our only avenue within the House of Commons or the Ontario legislature for change right now is with a tightly controlled political group. And clearly that has to change or in my opinion, the entire electoral system will be lost as an avenue for the left. So I, I have, I know you've got like a million things that you could possibly say, but I, we've kind of come to the end of our time. So I thank you, Jay, for always persisting in these tough spaces for helping walk members through, because you do this continually. I know you do one-on-one. -on -one. You're con consistently in New Democrat, coming up with ideas, trying to help people understand just why it's not so easy to just get elected onto the executive and make things happen. Um, and, you know, we do appreciate it. And I know it has, you know, it does cost emotional labor, like Akua mentioned, and, and you have kind of talked about here, but, you know, I, we are appreciative that folks are in there doing the battle because not all of us can all the time, right? Can I leave on a final note? Please. So to fully en encapsulize the mental health impact, the thing that has caused the largest mental health impact isn't actually the situations and the people who are causing these situations. It is being left out or left alone, dismissed when calling for support from others. So you talk of these people who are in these spaces fighting for democracy, fighting for transparency, fighting these issues. And when we say we need help, it doesn't matter what my title is, I'm one person. If there's a hundred people, a thousand people, it's the message, it's the meaning, it's the purpose that has the highest impact. So get in touch with the people who are speaking out, who are accessible on executives and support them and support yourself because it's our party thank you for your perspective as always jay thank you for having me like in all things that we do there's a team behind blueprints of disruption i want to give a big thank you to our producers santiago hello quintero and jay woodruff our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon backslash bp of disruption so if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show please reach out to us on twitter at bp of disruption blueprints of disruption is a project of new left media an independent employee-owned company